Welcome everybody to the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by Bill Plotkin, PhD. Before we get into his formal introduction and uh, our conversation, I'll just make a few announcements. As you all know, though there are people joining from everywhere around the world, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound it's on West 4th Avenue in Kitsilano, Vancouver. And this is on the unceded traditional territories of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. So we thank those peoples and their ancestors for having us on this land. Now, Banyan Books just celebrated its 50th anniversary as Canada's leading spiritual and healing resource, an independent bookstore since 1970. So that's cause to celebrate. Um, all of your purchases can be made, including Bill Plotkin's four books, uh, at banyan.com. That's B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Please support your local independent bookstores. If you're in Vancouver and want to go in in person, the stores open 11 to 7 every day, 4th and Dunbar. Okay. Our special guest today, Bill Plotkin, PhD. He's a wilderness guide, eco-depth psychologist, and an agent of cultural regeneration. As founder of Southwest Colorado's Animus Valley Institute, he has since 1980 guided thousands of women and men on the journey of soul initiation. This work includes nature-based initiatory passages, one of which is a contemporary Western adaptation of the pan-cultural vision fast, among many other processes, practices, and ceremonies. Earlier in life, Bill has been a research psychologist studying non-ordinary states of consciousness, professor of psychology, a psychotherapist, rock musician, and whitewater river guide. In 1979, on a solo winter ascent of an Adirondack peak, Bill experienced a call to adventure, leading him to abandon academia in search of his true calling. Our guest today is the author of four books, which are Soulcraft, Nature and the Human Soul, Wild Mind, and his newest book, published January 2021, The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. His website is www.animus. Dot org. That's A-N-I-M-A-S dot O-R-G. Today, in conversation with us about his latest book, among other things, please, Banyan community, join me in welcoming Bill Plotkin. Bill, thank you for being here. Great to be here with you. Thanks for the opportunity. So before we get into uh, this wonderful book that you've written, mapping out this uh, journey of soul initiation, the descent to soul. Maybe you can just give our audience a bit of context for first how you came to this work yourself and then how you came to write this specific book. Okay. Um, I got into this work um, because maybe like a lot of people um, in my youth, I was asking questions about what's life about anyways and why are we mortal and 
um, what can one hope to do or accomplish in life? But um, the spiritual traditions, um, both from the West and the East that I studied and practiced in earlier in my, my early adulthood um, were not um, helping me access some realm that I intuited was um, essential to being fully human. So I kept looking and um, I eventually found uh, the work of two of my um, most beloved teachers from California, Stephen Foster and Meredith Little, who were uh, starting in the 70s, reintroducing the pan-human vision fast to the Western world. And that seemed like that might be an avenue. Um, so um, at the time, uh, I was in my mid-20s, and I was a um, research psychologist. <clears throat> Um, in New York State. And um, one winter, I went out to um, climb a peak in the Adirondack Mountains. And um, at the top, it was um, a snowshoe ascent. And it was a beautiful sunny day, the day after a great snowstorm. And when I got to the top, um, I was admiring the view. And um, and then something totally unexpected happened to me. There was this immense uh, ball of emotion that came up from my belly and out through my mouth as a whale. And uh, I literally fell to onto my knees in the snow. And, uh, and I had this understanding, this realization that my life as I've known it was over. And at the time I, was um, in my second year as a, an assistant professor of psychology at a state university in New York. Um, and my career was going really well. I was um, studying non-ordinary states of consciousness um, and really deeply um, alert to that work. And um, But I just got this, um, and I was succeeding, great. I was publishing in the best journey, journals and so on. Um, had some great graduate students I was working with. Um, but I had this sense that that wasn't my life. Um, and I looked out um, onto this vast valley, snow-covered valley of mountains and rivers. And there was the, the sun was gleaming off the uh, water on the bend of one river. And somehow what I felt there, sensed was that that that, that, that um, gleaming spot was at least symbolically something that I had to go out into the world and find. As in Mary Oliver's phrase, I, I felt called to stride deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing I could do, determined to save the only life I could save. So I hiked down that mountain and the next day I um, wrote my letter of resignation and uh, went out to the um, West Coast, to Oregon 
And I spent that year um, doing a, um, a clinical internship in psychology, but mostly what I was doing was um, asking the, the biggest questions I could ask about life. And towards the end of, or actually at the end of that year, I, I took myself out into the Colorado mountains for a, the first vision fast. And um, on that fast on the fourth day, the story is told in much greater uh, depth in my first book, Soulcraft. Um, at the end of that fourth or towards the uh, middle of that fourth day, I was in conversation with a spruce tree on the edge of this um, lake just below tree line. And, um, and at one point the monk uh, gestured to his left. Uh, the, the Bruce tree had become a monk. I don't know if I said that. Um, it was very clear that it was the true identity of this tree was, uh, was a monk who had been meditating on the still waters of this Alpine lake for many years. Um, so the monk tree gestured to its to his left and um, I followed his gesture and saw a butterfly flying in my direction, a yellow butterfly, and it flew to me and actually brushed the left side of my face as, as she went by. And um, I heard the words in English, cocoon weaver. And um, that to me at, at the moment wasn't any more interesting than anything else that had been happening that day. Um, but I did write it in my journal. And about a minute or two later, um, again, one of those big, enormous, uh, explosive uh, balls of emotion came up through my throat. And I realized I had just been shown what my life would actually be about. It had something to do with weaving cocoons. And I had absolutely no idea at first what that meant. And, and I'm still learning 40 years later. Um, so um, that got me into this work eventually. Yeah. Yes as a weaver of cocoons for others to go through their own transformational journey. Yes. And you do much of this work at uh, Animus Valley Institute in Colorado. Um, and you have many other people that you've worked with in the 40 years that you've been there, both people that come to attend your programs and other people that are assisting you and facilitating. What in, how is how is you've you've got three books previous to this one? How has it worked up to this map that you have laid out here, which is, as you say, different than anything else most of us would have seen? It's it's got some pieces from Joseph Campbell's Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. That would be the one people are most familiar with, but it is something altogether new in terms of the map. Maybe not new to the human experience. So how is it that this has been birthed? This book. Yeah, um, well, let me tell you a little bit about the journey of soul initiation. Um, the muse just uh, whispered to me about an hour or two ago this particular way to, to introduce it. <laughs> so this will be the first time I'm trying this. She said, you know, there's four interesting things about the journey of soul initiation that you should mention, Bill, um, before you even tell people what it actually is. And these are the four. She said, um, when 
people just hear the name of the book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, most people will feel it sounds familiar enough and suspect they, they know what it is. But the second thing she said to mention is that um, although it sounds familiar, it's basically completely unknown in the contemporary Western world. Um, and so that what people tend to think it is, is wrong. It's something actually different. And the third thing she said is that every human longs for this kind of, the, the kind of experience that you have on this journey. But as starting at say mid-teen years, everybody has a longing for it, but virtually nobody knows what that longing is actually for, where it's coming from. And, and therefore, very few people end up going on the journey because it's just not on uh, our current Western maps. And the fourth thing she said to mention is that I'm confident that this journey, this initiation process, this particular kind of process, uh, or some precursor of it or something like it, has been true of every healthy, has been an element of every healthy human culture from the beginning of the human story and will be of any future healthy culture. And obviously I'm implying that ours isn't and I imagine everybody would agree that um, our culture is quite um, de decayed and psycho-spiritually and, um, and a healthy culture would not be destroying life on our planet. Um, so then um, she said, well, it's always good to mention what it isn't before you even tell people what it is. Yeah. So here's a, a few of the, the things that it isn't that you might think it is. It's not a rite of passage. The, the journey of soul initiation is a process that uh, takes several years, typically sometimes many more for those who even begin it. Um, and maybe only... 10 to 20% of contemporary people do even start it. Um, and it starts with a passage for which could be assisted by a rite of passage and it ends with a passage, but this, that several or more years of the actual journey is not a rite of passage. <clears throat> Second thing she says is um, it's good to point out that it's not therapy and it's not a type of healing. Um, that I'm a big fan of, and I was a psychotherapist for many years, big fan of healing. All of us need all kinds of healing and we'll never be done with our healing. But the journey of soul initiation is not that kind of thing at all. In fact, you'd have to say it's counter-therapeutic. Um, it's not a vision fast, although sometimes a vision fast is included in the journey, although it's not necessary at all for the journey. It's also, it's not shamanism and it's not Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. There's some significant differences from what Campbell mapped out. Um, it's not a mere nature connection experience, although those are, that's so important to most everybody in contemporary societies, nature reconnection, but that's not what it is, the journey. Um, it's not what we tend to think of spiritual journeys uh, or what I would call upper world spiritual journeys, which are deeply uh, facilitative of our human growth, but it's not that. It's not a merging with divine 
Um, it's not achieving oneness or non-duality and so forth. Um, it's not a discovery of our social role or our vocational purpose. That is not what it is. Um, okay, that maybe is enough examples <laughs> of what it isn't. That it is not, that we might mistake it for. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's the way our human, everybody knows that's how our human mind works, is that when we come across something new, the first thing our mind attempts to do is to categorize it as something we already know about. And if it's something that's that's truly new to uh, to us in our own realm, then um, we'll misunderstand it. Right. Okay. So what it actually is is, um, as I say, it's a multi-year process of initiation that um, results in our deepest possible human connection with the greater Earth community, and it also. Um, connects us with the deepest meaning and purpose of our lives. And third is um, it supports us, it enables us to provide our, our greatest gift to the world and to participate in the more than human world in the deepest way we can. So I'll just add one thing is that um, one of the most direct ways to say it, but people often misunderstand it, is that it is the initiation process that leads to true adulthood. But we don't, we don't even have, in the Western world, we don't even have a, anything that corresponds to what I've come to understand true adulthood is. But I believe all healthy nature-based cultures would have a similar definition. And um, my shortest definition is a visionary artisan of cultural renaissance. That's, that's something that all true adults do. And, um, but a slightly longer definition is it's a person, an adult, a true adult is a person who experiences their primary membership as being in the larger earth community. That in, in addition to all the other colorful parts of our identity, including sexual identity, ethnic identity, religious identity, um, social group, and uh, so forth. Um, this is something uh, a, a true adult experiences their primary membership as being in the larger earth community. And they've had one or more experiences that have allowed them to glimpse their unique place in that earth community, not in, in the human village, directly, but in the larger earth community. And third, a true adult is someone who's embodying that, um, that ecological identity uh, as a gift to their people and to the, the larger world. Um, so last thing for now is to mention what I mean by soul, which I just kind of implied yes. it, uh, explicitly. Um, I've come to understand that that we can't truly grok the word soul if we understand it primarily as a psychological or a spiritual concept. I've come to understand it's an ecological concept. And what I mean by it is simply the soul of anything, because everything has a soul, is its unique ecological niche, its unique place in the greater earth community. And we humans, like everything else, are born to take a particular place and to have a, a specific gift to bring to the larger world. 
Um, and that's what I mean by soul. And it's the source of our deepest meaning because meaning comes from taking our true place of belonging. Thank you for that. And you're, you're really clear in your book, uh, the glossary is quite comprehensive and you, you make a big effort in the beginning to define these terms clearly, not to use them ambiguously. And that's really helpful. Uh, I think not just in reading the book, but for all of us to question how we use these terms and how we understand them. Um, Bill, maybe you can give us just a brief, uh, very brief overview of the um, five phases of the descent to soul or the descent into what you call soul canyon use that imagery and metaphor of soul canyon and then maybe i can ask you a few questions about each of those phases yeah okay the the five um phases that we as we have come to understand them at animus valley institute uh, the first phase is preparation um, there's a lot of psycho-spiritual preparation that uh, a person would want to have. Um, and that preparation is even after we've reached the stage of life when the descent to soil is a possibility. So let me say a bit about that, that okay. um, it's kind of, it's always kind of troubling to have to say this, but I've come to believe that 80 to 90% of people in contemporary industrialized societies um, get stuck in what corresponds to the psychological stage of early, of early adolescence. And by that, I don't mean our teen years. I mean uh, the stage of life that starts at puberty and ought to end after four or five years. But for most contemporary people, it goes on for the rest of their lives, regardless of how long they live. Um, so... I've come to understand that we're most of the world is suffering from arrested human development. And that is the only possible explanation for why we're destroying life on our planet at this time. Um, okay. That's kind of a background and there's all kinds of um, psychological and spiritual work to help us get through early adolescence and into what I call late ad adolescence, which I also call the, stage of the cocoon and the cocoon stage is when the journey of soul initiation happens. Okay. So that was background to say that the preparation for the preparation phase of the descent to soul, by the way, the descent to soul is one particular experiential and spiritual adventure that happens during the journey of soul initiation. The descent to soul can be as short as maybe a month or two, uh, but typically it's uh, a year or more, depending on whether you have guidance. Like Carl Jung's Descent to Soul went on for several years. Um, okay, so there's um, preparation activities. Um, remembering you asked for kind of a brief overview. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you're doing a great job. There's, there's Just so the audience understands, this is a lot to cover in, in an interview. And so... I encourage everyone to, to pick up the book because it, it really is wonderful. And we're only going to be able to scratch the surface tonight, I know. Okay. Um, so the second phase, which um, in the Soul Canyon metaphor or analogy, is when we've gotten, begins, the second phase begins when we've gotten to the edge of the canyon. Preparation was like going through the forest to get to the edge of the canyon. And then 
we um, climb down, but the truth is it's more like free fall. We fall down into the canyon. And that falling, we call that second phase is dissolution. And what's dissolving is our, um, our adolescent identity, our familiar identity, who we understood ourselves to be, what the world is, what life's about, the whole thing it goes. So in some traditions, that's called dismemberment. And the third phase is when you're at the bottom of the canyon, and that we call soul encounter. And that's when you, you have the, that, uh, what in the Western world we consider a mystical vision um, of who we were meant to be. Like mine was the experience with the monk tree and the butterfly and hearing these words, cocoon weaver. Um, but it comes in many different forms. Mine's just one version, one type of soul encounter that came through an interaction with other non-human beings. And sometimes they come through dreams and so forth. Um, the fourth phase is like when we're climbing out the other side of the canyon, and we call that metamorphosis. And this uh, is one of the several ways in which the journey is different than Joseph Campbell's um, hero's journey because he didn't have anything like metamorphosis in his map. But metamorphosis is when our human ego is shape-shifted by the vision itself because the vision is not primarily information. It's actually more like being struck by lightning. And then there's um, that lightning changes us, uh, you might say, alchemically. But what is getting shape-shifted for us is our ego, our conscious self, is being um, metamorphosed, transformed from an adolescent ego, which is an agent for self, to a adult ego, which is an agent for soul. And the last phase is like when we're walking, we're back up out of the canyon on the other side, and we're walking through the forest back to the village. And this can take years, this phase, at least months, um, is when we begin to find simple ways to embody the, this new identity, even before we find a true delivery system to offer it as a gift to our people. It's the early enactment, that's what we call it, enactment of our embodiment of the, of the identity. So there's about the quickest overview I could give you. Right. No, that was wonderful. Thank you. So just to recap for the audience, there's the, the descent to soul. Bill uses the image of soul canyon. We have phase one, which is preparation. You're still on level ground. Phase two, the dissolution is you're going down into the canyon. Phase three at the bottom is soul encounter. And then you start coming back out of this canyon. It's your phase of metamorphosis and coming back to the surface of earth or the world is enactment. Okay. Now, just also to remind our audience, this is based on 40 plus years of experience guiding people, observing people, studying on the ground, real experience. Not This isn't just a philosophical or academic outlook. Um, so phase one, preparation for the descent into Soul Canyon. You talk about the non-negotiables in our preparation that are needed in our personal development. So that we have a chance at, you use the word surviving, the ch a chance at surviving our descent to and our encounter with soul. 
what are what do you mean by what are these non-negotiables that we need to have in our preparation? Um, good question. Um, give me a hint. What what are the things <laughs> I mentioned? Because there's there's actually so many. You t- you talked about you talked about you've come to two conclusions that a particular developmental stage must be achieved before before a person is right. ready to embark on the journey. Yeah. You said also that relatively few contemporary people ever achieve this stage. And you you kind of hint at that it's not guaranteed that we'll we'll ever get to that stage where of readiness for this descent to soul. And in in a lot of ways we can we can't control whether it happens or not. Even if we're preparing, it it might not happen. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's um, something I was um, at least alluding to earlier, that uh, one of the non-negotiables is that we're actually in the cocoon stage. Again, only 10 or 20% of contemporary people ever reach that stage. And they might not know what's happening to them even when they go through that passage, which I call confirmation. So early adolescence, I call the the oasis, which is the stage when we're learning how to create our own social presence. Because in childhood, we basically created, um, we didn't even create it, we, we, our ego forms as pretty much a child of our particular family and community. And we learn our parents' value system. And that's essential that we learn a value system from somebody in childhood. But after puberty, we have to change our value system at least somewhat to fit who we really are so discovering our deeper authenticity and and our deeper way of belonging um in the current um there's a current movement uh, it's getting um more popular over the last 10 years or so called the, the purpose movement where people are starting to focus more on this question of what is my personal meaning and and am I just going through the motions or just finding a job that um, I can survive at? And unfortunately, of course, there's so many people in the world who that's that's what their life has to be about, is about survival because of the uh, conditions in the world now. But for the, us privileged people who can afford to ask the question questions about purpose and meaning, that's almost always an early adolescent question that's being asked. Uh, namely, what's my social role? What's the social role or, or a vocation or a creative project that is um, that embodies uh, who I am? And this is really on the personality level, and and it doesn't go anywhere close as deep as the the soul level. But in early adolescence, which most contemporary people are in after puberty, um, it is essential to go through this question of uh, of belonging and personal authenticity. So all that needs to be completed um, before we we get into the cocoon stage. And uh, I think you might've mentioned Ross, and it's true that um, we don't decide when to go to the next stage and there's no other humans who declare that we're ready. And so therefore we go, and there's no rite of passage that gets us to go into the next stage. But the way I like to say it is mystery says, okay, you've done enough work at creating this authentic social presence that is also um, gives you social acceptance in your peer group. 
we're now sending you over into the cocoon. And in a healthy culture, the elders would notice that that's happening to you. And they wouldn't, they don't um, bring you into the cocoon. They just notice that it's happened. And then they would, and other people in the community would create a rite of passage for you to help you get oriented to the passage that just already happened for you and to let the rest of the community know this has happened to you and you're gonna need some support because you're gonna be totally disoriented for a while. And the rite of passage helps you understand what's happened to you. Okay, so that's a, oh, that's a non-negotiable. Um, right. Another major piece is that um, to prepare for the actual dissolution, that, which is the phase, which is the uh, free fall into Soul Canyon, we have to um, have cultivated enough of what I call the four facets of our innate human wholeness. Like each one of us is born, every human is born with these four facets that we've mapped onto nature's template, namely um, the four cardinal directions and the four times of day and the four seasons. Um, and we don't have time right now to go into what those four facets are. Um, just briefly, I'll say that contemporary cultures suppress the cultivation of all four of them, especially the two that are considered feminine. Um, and so that those are the two that we most need to attend to. And you wouldn't want to make that descent, that free fall into the canyon, unless you had all four facets decently cultivated. Yes. Just off the cuff, you mentioned the, the feminine. Um, you know, is the, is the suppression of the feminine one of the key pieces that's missing in our, in our developing as whole human beings in, our, in this culture? Yeah, exactly. The, the suppression of the feminine is, um, is part of what keeps us stuck in early adolescence. Um, it's a little bit more complicated because um, what I'm referring to as the feminine is, I believe, uh, these two facets are an aspect of every person regardless of their um, their sex and regardless of their gender orientation. Um, but the, the, um, the juvenile, uninitiated, pathologically adolescent, masculine mind, which sometimes we use the shorthand patriarchal, thinks of these two facets of our innate human wholeness as not me, not masculine. And, and so it's not me, it must be true of women. Um, that mask, that, that um, immature masculine mind will say. And so in our culture, our, our contemporary Western culture, we've tended to think of these two as feminine, but in fact, they're just two of the four facets. Um, and, um, and, and also part of that patriarchal mind is the disconnect from the greater natural world, which has also been considered as feminine. That's not me. Um, so just briefly, these two aspects of the feminine, um, they have to do with four, two of our four windows of human knowing. One is feeling, which includes emotions. And the other one is our deep imagination, the imagination that springs from our depths unbidden and uh, through dreams and 
visions and so forth. Um, and there's much more to say about these two facets, but um, well, I'll tell you their, their names, that the, the one in the South, which is related to our capacity for feeling, we call the wild indigenous one. And by indigenous, I simply mean the part of us that knows we are a member of earth, um, whether or not we uh, had the good fortune of being born to an intact indigenous culture or not. There's that we have this indigeneity that's basically our rootedness in earth and our experience that everything is kin and our experience that every human emotion is a gift and supports us in our, in our relationships and our growth. And the West facet, which is the other one that the patriarchal minds thinks of as feminine, is um, we call it the dark muse beloved. This is the part of us that loves the depths, the darkness to, to, to this part of us. The darkness is fruitful and endlessly enchanted uh, including uh, the process of dying and death. And um, it's when we say it's the muse, it's our deepest creativity. And uh, the beloved is the inner beloved, it's the part of us um, that we tend to feel is at first is, is not me, but it's, it's the inner beloved. It's the part of us that in a adolescent world, we project onto people we fall in love with. And of course, that gets a relationship going really hot and beautifully. But if we don't own back that projection, it'll end up wrecking the relationship, which happens so often. Okay, so here's at least a yes, early that's sketch. A, a wonderful glimpse and a teaser to want to learn more about that. Um, uh, phase two. So we've we've if we get to this phase, if we have prepared through our own self-development, becoming whole as human beings, um, moving to, into late adolescence, as you call it. Um, phase two, dissolution. This is where we begin the descent into Soul Canyon. Can you let our audience know what, what can they expect? What are some of the possible joys? What are some of the possible horrors one might experience in this dissolution phase where Literally, our ego, egoic self, our sense of self is being taken apart. Yeah, it's um, like, again, being dismembered. It's um, not only do we lose our connection or belief in the social roles we had been inhabiting and um, any vocation or career or creative projects we've been involved in, but something even more profound is happening during dissolution, especially on our first descent. And that is we lose our faith that we'll ever be able to identify ourselves to ourselves in any significant or um, ultimate way in terms of any social role or um, vocation. That that whole way of defining ourselves is just is gone. And that leaves us in a... Um, uh, a very deep kind of limbo, and it can be very scary, especially if we don't know what's happening to us. So here I should contrast this with what might seem like a similar experience that happens in early adolescence, which again is most of the life of most contemporary people. And that is 
uh, something we call molting, which is an analogy taken from the life of caterpillars. Before caterpillars go into the cocoon or become a chrysalis, um, caterpillars go through a series of moltings in which they shed their skin and grow another somewhat larger skin. Biologists call this a molt or molting. And one thing that's true about moltings is that on either side of that experience, you're a caterpillar. Um, and the analogy with humans in early adolescence is that when we go through a, you know, a change in romantic relationships or a change in our social circle or a new job or we move to a different part of the country or the world, um, or we change our religion or our spiritual practice, um, this is a molt. And we're early adolescents on both sides of it. Um, so imagine the difference for a caterpillar between shedding a skin and growing a new skin, which is a very profound experience for a caterpillar, we have to imagine. But the difference between that and your and your and being in a cocoon and your body dissolving into caterpillar soup. That's much more profound. And it, let's say you have the intuition as you're becoming soup that you'll never be a caterpillar again. And you're not sure what you are gonna be. Okay, there's the analogy. And I think that helps people get the difference. Um, in dissolution, the whole adolescent, early adolescent life is, is gone. And T.S. Eliot has a wonderful phrase in one of his poems. He says, the cost is nothing, nothing less than everything. So that is emphasizing the, the terror of the experience. But the other part of it is joy, that there's, that, that free fall is also freedom, that we're being completely liberated from that whole adolescent, early adolescent game of, of developing social status and competing with others and so forth, that we're liberated from that and we're being ushered into a world of mystery and enchantment that is that we know is much deeper than anything we've ever experienced before in our life. And there's a great joy about that. And one of the things I'd like to, to note is that a person doesn't start that free fall into the canyon, the dissolution phase, until their longing for the depths finally one day becomes greater than the terror of those those same depths this is this is the call is it exactly yeah um the call to spiritual adventure is what happens and um that's what i experienced in that peak in the winter and in, in the adirondacks um it was soul speaking to me I guess mystery decided I was ready enough. I was 30 years old, maybe 29 then actually. And uh, this call to stride deeper and deeper into the world. Um, and there's always the start of dissolution. In addition to the call, there's always the crisis. And the crisis for me was realizing that this career I had prepared my whole life for was not mine. It was was not my way to continue in life. And, and you've mentioned in the book that 
one can be can consciously receive this call or can you liken it to like an abduction where one is pulled pulled downward what is that experience like yeah that has that has to do with the distinction that some people um when they hear the call they say yes to it and they um and they might be fortunate enough to know what to do to say yes to it. And, or they might know some guides who can help them say yes. But in the contemporary Western world, it, it, it is so unusual that people know what's happening to them when it does happen. And 10 to 20% of people it does happen to. That's a small percentage, but a very, very large number of people. Um, it... Uh, Mystery tends to take a heavier hand in those circumstances, and it's more like an abduction, um, as in uh, the Greek myth of Persephone, who is abducted by the god of the underworld, Hades, who comes flying up through the surface of the earth in his chariot and grabs Persephone, when, who was at that time named Kor, which means the maiden, um, uh, and snatches her away um, from her community and takes her down into the underworld. So yeah, abductions are more common than not in the contemporary world when people do get to the stage where the descent happens. Carl Jung was very famously abducted. Um, he was minding his business more or less one day at home um, where he had his psychiatry practice when he was um, 30, six, something like that, years old. And um, and he was moved into, people would say, a non-ordinary state of consciousness. Um, but what and what he experienced was that there was a horde of dead people that came to his house. And they said, the dead said to him that they had just come back from Jerusalem where they hoped to get their questions answered, but they were not answered there. And they demanded that he answer their questions. <laughs> um, and that's in some ways how things began for him. Now you, you reference Carl Jung's uh, Red Book and have a bit of a different interpretation of it than many. Could you just give our audience a brief understanding of that? Yeah, I was quite profoundly moved when I finally read the Red Book uh, several years ago. Um, maybe some people don't know the Red Book is essentially Carl Jung's journals of what he called his confrontation with the unconscious. It um, started uh, a year or so after his famous breakup with Freud, um, which was his crisis, was part of his crisis that started his um, descent and um, as I, and the Red Book, you know, so it was, he worked on it from 1916 till about 1931, something like that. And uh, what he was doing, it was he took his, his journals from the approximately four years of his, what he called his confrontation with the unconscious. Um, and he, he transcribed them. Um, 
into um, a large folio sized book and he illustrated it with paintings and so forth. And he worked on it for something like 15 years. Um, so the red book is essentially a version of his, his journals that he kept during his confrontation. And um, as I was reading, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't published to something about something like 2007, something like that. Um, so, which is 50 years or so after his death. Um, and when I was reading it, um, at first I was kind of puzzled what was going on. And then the pattern started forming and it became clear to me that this was essentially the first three phases of his uh, descent to soul, his first descent to soul. And the Red Book, in my understanding, is primarily the preparation phase and the dissolution phase. Um, it's, and his, uh, Jung's primary uh, process that he used for this descent was the deep imagination, which he called active imagination. So every night after being with his family during the day and seeing his patients during the day, he would close the door of his study and he would imagine himself falling into an abyss. And then uh, once he hit bottom, then he would have these enormously intense experiences, more intense than most people's dreams that would go on for some time. Um, and they, he was not in control, which is one of the um, primary features of the descent. The ego is absolutely not in control and is uh, along for the, the ride, so to speak. And um, so the, his deeper psyche, what, through active imagination, was preparing him to cultivate the facets of wholeness, which were least developed in him, that he needed in order to go through dissolution. But, uh, but more or less simultaneously, he was also having dissolution experiences, where his entire understanding of what he was, what it is to be a man, what it is to be alive, what the world is, everything was being shredded for him through a series, a long series of experiences that took place over something like three years. And at the end of those three years, maybe it was four years, uh, he had his first soul encounter, which is at the very end, almost at the very end of the Red Book is his first soul encounter. And that soul encounter started when the horde of dead came from Jerusalem to his house, demanded that he answer their questions. And he spent the next several nights answering their questions. And he called this the seven sermons to the dead. And he actually publishes this separate little pamphlet around that time. Um, and what makes that a soul encounter is that he was placed by mystery or by soul into the, his role, into his, uh, what I call his mythopoetic identity, his um, unique ecological niche. And that role with, for him was to de develop and cultivate a, what we might call an intimate relationship with the dead which he understood to be a way of symbolically um, accessing the unconscious. And so uh, part of his soul identity, Carl Jung's, is to be the one who would bring to the Western world, at least be one of the people who would bring to the Western world, 
an understanding of what the unconscious is and what its relationship is to the dead to or to our ancestors. Beautiful. Okay, so we're on to the soul encounter now. Phase three. What makes this phase, soul encounter, the, the pivotal phase in the descent to soul? Yeah, okay, so the um, dissolution of our earlier former familiar identity has been complete. And um, and you might say, when you first think about it, you might say, well, the goal of the descent to soul is to have an encounter with soul, is to glimpse something about our mythopoetic identity, which of course is the metaphor that helps us, that points us towards our unique ecological niche, um, because that's the way our human consciousness helps us understand our unique niche is through a metaphor or a symbol or a poem or a dance, um, something metaphoric. Um, so it's the, you could say it's the apex, but it's really the nadir of the journey. It's the bottom of the journey. And it's what we, going into the descent, it's what we think we've come for and that maybe the the descent will be over once we have that vision, but it's actually just the middle, middle part. Okay. So within this soul encounter, you mentioned in the book that there might be need to attend once again to our holing and our self-healing. How does this arise during the process of the soul encounter? Yeah. Um, you know, the general principle is that the more we develop, the more we mature, the more we move to later stages, or in the case of descent, later phases, um, the more wholeness we need. Um, you might think as we grow into later stages of life, um, it's life becomes easier, but it actually becomes more challenging. It becomes more fulfilling and more joyful but it becomes more challenging. And so with each new stage or with the, the descent, each new phase, we need um, greater cultivation of our wholeness. And um, part of this, there's so much, so many things to say, Ross, but part of it is that um, especially growing up in contemporary cultures, which I call patho-adolescent, pathological adolescent cultures, there's nothing wrong with adolescence. A healthy adolescence is a great stage to be in. But if you have a whole culture stuck in early adolescence, it becomes not a very healthy one. Um, so um, let's see, did I learn, lose my train of thought? Oh, holding, yes, okay. Holding um, self-healing. Because we grew up in, in these patho-adolescent cultures, a lot of us experience trauma. And uh, there's a lot of trauma to heal. And by the way, I understand, come to understand trauma the same way as the uh, Canadian physician, Gabor Mate, um, you might know him, he's a fabulous author. Yes. The way he understands trauma, which is it's not what happens to us. It's not the overwhelming experiences and difficult experiences that happen to us, but it's what we do inside ourselves, usually unconsciously, to protect ourselves from the full onslaught of those 
difficult experiences. So the trauma is, is something in a sense we do to ourselves and we do it for our own psycho-spiritual safety, but it also really limits us. And so um, healing trauma is a matter in, in, in my understanding of learning to embrace what we call our inner protectors who are trying to protect us from fully experiencing in our bodies and in our emotions, um, those experiences that were too difficult to assimilate. So as we go through the descent to soul and more generally through stages of life, um, as we become more whole, we're able to access and assimilate deeper levels of trauma. And so in some ways, um, you know, the, the trauma healing doesn't end, but we get to go deeper with it. And, and the healing of trauma helps us become increasingly whole. And many of the people we've guided at MS Valley Institute, the uh, experience of soul encounter, not to mention dissolution, is so intense that sometimes are um, there, which is say our inner protectors come and try to rescue us from the experience. And one of the essential things for a soul initiation guide is to recognize that that's what's happening to an initiate and to help them essentially press the pause button for a while and uh, work on uh, cultivating additional cultivation of wholeness and also um, what we call self-healing, which sometimes is um, the healing of trauma. Yes, okay. Can you just remind us one more time, you have touched on this already, but just so everybody's really clear on it, what are the, in, what are the ways that soul encounter presents itself to us? You mentioned dreams, your experience with the tree as a monk and the, and the butterfly at the river bend. What are some of the ways that we can identify a soul encounter? Um, yeah, so waking experiences, um, I'd say uh, enchanted experiences with other than human beings, like in my case with the butterfly. Um, sometimes soul encounter comes through a really big dream. Sometimes it comes when we're in a, a trance. Um, Joanne, Joanna Macy's first soul encounter, her stories are told in this book. Uh, her first soul encounter was just after she gave birth to her second child and she was under anesthesia um, while the physician was sewing up her birth tears. Um, and the altered state, the non-ordinary state that was combined, was, that was from a combination of having given birth and, and anesthesia and, and who knows what else um, led to her first soul encounter very profound experience. Um, and a, another way that it happens for some people is it's a sudden like lightning strike insight as to the pattern that your life has been making all the time. It's a pattern on kind of a symbolic or metaphorical level that your life has been making, um, but you never really realized it before that, that this deeper mythopoetic pattern just it's like it's announced by your deeper psyche um, and everything lines up. Thank you. So we've gone through preparation, dissolution, the descent to soul, 
and soul encounter, making contact with our mythopoetic identity. Phase four, metamorphosis. What happens in this phase to our ego? Yeah, that's um. I've, maybe I mentioned it before. This is the phase that we don't find anything like it in Joseph Campbell's uh, map of the uh, hero with a thousand faces, the hero's journey. Um, and this is an essential piece. And we came to it, the understanding of it, somewhat late in our forty years of working with people. Um, and the way to understand how essential it is is to go back to the caterpillar analogy and um so the caterpillar has his its body has dissolved in the cocoon or the chrysalis and then these did i mention these yet these cells that have been in the caterpillar's body all along the imaginal cells that's what biologists call it because they're imagining an imago, imago being the biologist word for an adult cat, um, butterfly or moth. Um, the imaginal cells wake up and we might say they're imagining flight and that's the soul encounter for the caterpillar. And then the imaginal cells work is to take these recyclable materials of a former caterpillar body and to form it into a completely different creature, a butterfly. Um, and that's metamorphosis. And if the this creature were to break out of the cocoon or were the, if the cocoon was opened um, um, by say a branch falling out or, or something, while the caterpillar's body is still being formed into a butterfly's body, then what would flow out of that cocoon is just caterpillar soup and it would go splat and there'd never be a butterfly. So we humans are in a similar, incredibly vulnerable state after soul encounter. And soul initiation guides know that. Took us a while at Animus Valley Institute to really get what was going on. Um, Because in our contemporary world, we tend to think, if we think of visions or revelation at all, we think of it as information. Like in my case, okay, my life is going to be about weaving cocoons. I better pack up and hike off this mountain and get busy on, you know, the next day doing it, even though I have no idea what it even means. So what we discovered uh, 10, 15 years ago or so is that, some of our participants thought that they had to go right home and get busy saving the world by bringing their their unique gift to the world, but they're not able to yet. Um, and when they did that, they tried to do that, they went splat psychologically. And um, it's maybe the part of the descent to soul process that in which a person would be most vulnerable to suicide. So it's because they think they're supposed to be doing this grand thing in the world and they're not ready yet. And they would, might feel like a failure. So what has to transform during metamorphosis is, again, it's the ego, the human ego, from an adolescent agent for itself to an adult agent for soul. And it takes some months, if not years, for this to happen. 
And there are a set of practices we've developed at Animus that we call experimental threshold crossings, which is a way, these are the kind of practices a person in metamorphosis can engage in that will help them bridge from the revelation or the vision to um, the creation of a, a forming of an adult ego that's capable of delivering its gift to the world. And very briefly, an experimental threshold crossing is just acting in the world, in your human village, as somebody who has this identity, even though you don't know what it is yet, or what it means. Like, I was in the metamorphosis for probably two or three years, where I was doing my best to show up socially, and also in my work life, as this cocoon weaver dude, um, even though I really didn't know what it meant. But I was just like opening the door and asking my muse to show me like, what kind of conversation should I have with what people and what, uh, how should I show up in my community? Questions like that. Um, and these are threshold crossings. Yeah. Speaking from my own experience, it's wonderful to have you lay this out so clearly. And I, having used to work in the, the shop at Banyan Books, I know there, it's the kind of place where many people would come in that were in that space. And mm -hmm. I feel very grateful to have had good mentors, teachers and guides that understood and supported me through that process. Right. Um, how yeah. important is that role? Because I've met many people that that don't quite understand what's happened to them, but there is this sort of indignant outlook of they can do it on their own and they don't need uh, a guide or a mentor or teacher. What, what would you, what would be your comment on that? Yeah. Um, a, an utter guide who understands what's happening to you can make all the difference and uh, to help you actually survive the experience, but also to help you go through it somewhat faster than you and more effectively than you might otherwise. But you don't have to have uh, an outer guide <clears throat> because of the last several hundred, if not few thousand years in the Western world, at least, and as well as other cultures, people who have gone through this experience haven't had outer guides because there haven't been any, or at least not many. But luckily, there's two things we do have. One is that we often have inner guides that show up through our deep imagination. Like Carl Jung didn't had no idea what was going on for him. He had no outer guides. He had a companion, Tony Wolf, but no, but she hadn't gone through the experience. Um, and he had the support of his wife, Emma, uh, but she hadn't gone through the experience. Um, but he had these inner guides and um, for those who are familiar with the Red Book or even his um, memoir, Memory, Dreams, Reflections, his first guy, inner guides to the descent were um, Elijah, character, from, and Salome, both from the Bible, who he met in his imagination, and also a serpent. And then later, Elijah morphs into Philemon, and, and later on still, uh, Philemon morphs into uh, an inner guide called Ka. So a lot of people have inner guides. Um, if they've done the, enough inner preparation that they even got to the cocoon, they probably are in touch with an inner guide. 
or two or more. And the second thing that helps us out with metamorphosis is that this entire, I believe that this entire process is like built into our human psyches. It's something that on some deep level we know that, that um, we're designed to go through this experience if we get to the life stage of the cocoon. And so there's something that's, even if we don't have an, an imaginal guide that we can meet with, there's something that is uh, whispering suggestions of how to proceed. So the, the final phase after this metamorphosis enactment, you call this uh, performing your vision for your people to see. How, how is it that in the enactment phase, uh, we become a conscious evolutionary who's able to communicate to a healthy, or sorry, contribute to a healthy and mature culture? Yeah, the enactment phase <clears throat> with corresponds in the life of a caterpillar or moth or butterfly to that time when the butterfly body is formed metamorphosis is complete and the, the butterfly or the moth breaks out of the cocoon, but it can't fly yet. Uh, it needs to spend some time on a branch um, pumping fluid into its new wings and then starting to flap its wings. So it's literally stretching its wings. And this takes some time um, before the butterfly or the moth can fly. So for us humans, after metamorphosis, um, maybe at that time we go back to our village, maybe we already have, maybe we haven't yet, but um, that we've, we've got this new, this very, very new uh, incipient adult ego, but we haven't really used it yet. So in enactment, um, we begin to uh, shift our attention towards embodiment that what can I do or rather I should say service what can I do to embody my mythopoetic identity that could be of service to other people and this is even before we um, choose a delivery system which is say an art or a craft or some kind of discipline it's it's before we uh, usually find um a, well, traditionally, it's we find a master in a particular craft that a craft that resonates with our particular mythopoetic identity. And we apprentice to that master or to that group of artisans and um, learn how to learn a delivery system, which can take, you know, some number of years, at least a year. Um, and that's what we do after the passage of soul initiation. Early adulthood is largely about um, learning a delivery system. But before the passage of soul initiation, we're still in the descent to soul, the first descent, and we're in this enactment phase. And it's before a delivery system, but we're just asking ourselves, how can I show up with others as I inhabit my mythopoetic identity? even before I learn a particular craft for doing it. Mm -hmm. is it. Is it a guarantee that 
having been through the first four phases, that we will actually succeed at embodying our mythopoetic identity? And uh, is that a guarantee or is there still isn't. much work to be done? Yeah, it isn't a guarantee. Um, we can be in any of the phases and never get further. Um, the descent can, uh, let's say, for example, we're starting to go through dissolution. We're starting to fall into Soul Canyon. And let's say we have no idea what's going on for us, even if it feels right in some ways, which it may or may not. And the people around us uh, who love us will notice that we're acting somewhat odd <laughs> and disoriented. And they may encourage us to see a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist. And, and the vast majority of therapists won't have a clue what's going on for you. And they will actually try to rescue you from the experience and thereby abort the, the descent. That happens a lot. Um, so things can, there's no guarantee we'll get far enough through the dissolution phase. Um, we might find a way to pull ourselves out of the canyon um, ourselves. Usually if you get too far in, it's too late to get out, but we might just be a little bit over the edge and be able to pull ourselves back out. Um, or we can have a soul encounter, but then leave the cocoon or try to leave the cocoon too soon. Um, and then we won't go through metamorphosis. And I mentioned before, that's a major problem. So there, no, there's no guarantee we'll get through it. And there's all kinds of trials and challenges as we go through. Again, it's a reason why it makes can make all the difference to have a map and, and or to have a guide to help you through it. Um, yeah, so in... In some uh, indigenous traditions that I've read about, for example, the um, uh, African um, medicine person, uh, Maladoma Somme, from the Dagara people in East Africa, um, West Africa, actually. Um, uh, he says that in his village, uh, he he was only could speak about the boys' initiations, but in his village there was apparently in every, any given um, group of boys going through the initiatory experience, which was of several months. Uh, there would be one or two or three boys that wouldn't physically survive, and which sounds horrendous. I mean, not just for the boy, but for his, um, his family. Um, but apparently the Dagara parents will say the one thing that's worse than dying during initiation is never being initiated. And so they're, they're willing to take the risk. Wow. I had the pleasure of, we hosted, we've hosted Maladoma Somme many times at, with Banyan in Vancouver and mm. uh, seen him speak. And his passion and clarity is wonderful in the way he talks about his culture, the way he brings it to life for everyone is, is wonderful. Yes. Um, 
So this is this is again a lot a lot to cover, and I'll encourage everyone to get the book and and dive into it. Um, thank you, Bill, for taking us through that process. Now we'll, we'll we've got a few minutes to just get to a couple of audience questions, if that's all right with you, Bill, and then wrap up. You bet. Apologies, everyone. We can't get to everyone's questions. We've we've had a lot, so thanks for everyone's participation. Um, Jeanette asks. How does the Western medicine symptom of psychosis fit into your work? And what may be an entry point in this map for people who have had this quote unquote explanation presented to them for a vision embodiment? Well, yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, like almost everything else that I've been saying, it depends on what stage of life a person is in. Um, you might say that um, everybody who goes through the descent is going through something that could be called by people who don't fully understand it as psychotic experience. Um, but there's also um, something you know, that people will call a psychotic experience and it happens in stage three or even in childhood. Those are different kinds of experiences. <clears throat> um, but the Western world in general doesn't understand, I believe, doesn't understand to any depth what psychosis is all about. Um, there are these non-ordinary states of consciousness that can be healing crises, but they can be um, actually um, expressing a kind of gift that a person is born with in order to, that allows them to access uh, non-ordinary realities easier than most people. And um, in Western, the Western world, that is, would be considered something like a curse um, because we don't really understand what it is. And then we tend to suppress those experiences with psychiatric medications and worse uh, kind of interventions. But in a healthy culture, um, what we in the Western world call a psychotic break would tend to be considered um, some kind of non-ordinary consciousness that might bring a gift, is likely to bring a gift to the individual or their family or to their community. And one of the, um, my new book is, half of what the book is are stories of people actually going through uh, the descent of soul. And one of the stories is um, of a, an extraordinary man who was diagnosed in his youth as having a bipolar disorder. And he went through the psychiatric gambit for many years on various kinds of um, medications. Um, but in a healthy nature-based culture, he would have been understood as a youth, as in his youth as someone who had a capacity to be in relationship to the other world or the non-ordinary world. Um, and luckily this, um, man discovered, um, in, in midlife that what he thought was a broken brain, he had been told by psychiatrists, of course, that he had a broken brain, that he did not have a broken brain. He had a gifted brain, but he needed to learn how to, to use that power. Um, and, and again, in a healthy country, he would have been taught by say medicine people, how to use that power when he was relatively young. Um, 
So he was saved in part by um, discovering the discipline of um, some disciplines of such as Tai Chi and uh, Qigong. And through that, he learned what in Qigong is called um, how to ride the wind horse. And um, this is the story in the book of a man named Kevin. And um, through that training, he was, he was, he learned how to keep um, himself grounded while he was entering these non-ordinary states. And so that they never, so that he, he was able to ride that horse, um, not control the horse, but not get thrown off it either. Um, and this um, was part of, this is just one element of an extraordinary story, but it allowed him to uh, use this capacity of consciousness that he was born with as a soul power to, to, which was an essential piece, has become a central piece of his work, which has to do with the restoration of forests and rivers. He's an ex incredibly talented, gifted um, ecologist who has been working in the Pacific Northwest um, and other places, Alaska and the American Southwest, helping communities restore um, and regenerate their habitats. And his capacity that was once called a broken brain is absolutely key to his extraordinary ability. Thank you. Um, again, there's so many great questions here. It's hard for me to choose, but this one, this one really grabbed me from John, who said, uh, Bill, you said the journey or process can take years. I'm almost 70 years old. Is it too late to start a journey of soul initiation? Oh, boy, I always like to say it's never too late. Um, and we've had people 50s, 60s, and 70s who've been on the, the journey. Um, but here's, the, again, the catch is we don't get to decide when it starts. And this goes against the the grain of most of Western psychology where people are considered to be adults at a certain age, 18 or 21 and so forth. And any kind of spiritual or psychological experience uh, or um, process is available to anyone. You just got to, you know, sign up, take the training or, or learn the practice. But what I've come to learn is that it isn't true that um, there's five more stages of life after puberty and if we get stuck in early adolescence, then that's the stage we have to work with. But if we are in the cocoon, um, if a person is in the cocoon, then, and they're hearing a call from soul, call to adventure, and they're, they're in a certain kind of crisis of identity, then yeah, it's never too late. Wonderful. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. We're already a little bit over time. Thank you, Bill, for, for staying with us. And I think this is a good one to end on. It's, it's, uh, there's a number of questions about uh, our, our collective planetary crisis and how this journey applies to that and where we're at as a, as a planet, as a, um, as a 
a human population on this planet with this soul initiation journey or descent to soul? How, how would you answer that? Yeah, I might have mentioned before, I can remember that um, I believe every major crisis on the planet now at root is due to um, arrested human development in contemporary industrialized cultures. That's where it all comes from, ultimately, because um, in, in a healthy culture, I mean, it just almost seems ridiculous to have to say it, but in healthy cultures, children are not murdering each other's each other in schools and on the street. And a large par portion of the population aren't addicted to drugs or other kinds of things. And um, politicians aren't bought by corporations who are um, poisoning our air and water and uh, land. And um, that healthy culture is not making weapons that can destroy all of life, etc. This is not the way healthy uh, uh, humans behave. Um, so, you know, a lot of um, activists now are saying we've got to, in the next 10 years or so, get to a life-sustaining culture. And I think it's absolutely true, we do, because we know that we're actually a life-destroying culture, which is very bizarre. And I mean, life-destroying species, most of our contemporary cultures are life-destroying, which is very bizarre because all other life on the planet is not just life-sustaining, it's life-enhancing. That's how life evolves and diversifies and complexifies, that every species not only sustains its own life and, and the life of its habitat, but it, it supports the, the further development uh, and unfolding of life. And I'm absolutely convinced that we humans were also evolved to do that in our own way. It's just that we're in this multi, this several thousand year long initiation process that we're learning how to be human and learning how to use our soul power, which has to do with our particular mode of consciousness in which we know that we know. Um, so it's the, the loss of the initiation processes in all the industrialized cultures going back hundreds and thousands of years, having lost these processes um, that is the, has resulted in this uh, incredible uh, crisis that we're in now. So learning again how to invent our own authentic initiation processes, not appropriating uh, or stealing the ceremonies and practices and maps of other cultures, but finding our own way to do to do this for ourselves is essential now. But here's the other half of it. It's not the most urgent thing. If we're ever gonna to get to a life enhancing society, we're going to need um, processes that help initiate people into true adulthood. And then later they, of course, they become genuine elders. Um, but um, before we get there, um, there's these more urgent things that we need to take care of. And of course, there are brilliant visionaries and organizations around the world, as everybody knows, working on these things. And um, 
we always think of Joanna Macy's uh, image of the great turning and the three dimensions of that. The first dimension of the great turning is to save as much life as possible while our governments and corporations are doing their best, so to speak, destroying life. Um, and that's more urgent than anything, including a journey of soul initiation. And the second dimension of the great turning is um, creating the infrastructure, the new systems for a life-sustaining culture. And for me, a healthy adolescent culture is life-sustaining. And I believe we can't do that in 10 years. Who knows if we'll be able to do it or not, but it's possible. And we can just with our strategic minds, I mean, we already know how to do it. Um, it's, you know, every, I think we, people know the kinds of things that have to happen to, to get us there. Um, and Joanna's third dimension of the great turning is um, a shift in, in consciousness and values, or a shift in our perception of reality. And I believe she primarily mean, means what I call ecological awakening, which is we need a significant portion, hopefully before too long, a majority of people who've awakened ecologically, who've actually had the somatic, profound somatic experience of being as wild and natural as anything else on this planet. And that, in other words, to actually experience our innate kinship with all of the rest of life and to fall in love deeply with our the greater earth community and not just our corner of the human village. So um, reinventing the journey of soul initiation is foundational to getting to a um, life enhancing culture, which is to say a truly mature culture, but it's not the most urgent thing. And there's so many elements that we have to change. Um, and meanwhile, that's more urgent that has to do with our energy systems, our food systems, our political systems. Just for one example, in a healthy culture, there is no such concept as a politician. What you have are elders who aren't elected, they're recognized. And everybody in a healthy culture can recognize a true elder. And the idea of having politicians um, who can be bought and sold, it's just total pathology. It's not what we would have. So there's a few thoughts. I hope that's useful. Very useful. Thank you. A lot, a lot of challenges, a lot to deal with. Um, it's the work of our time. Um, and thank you for the wonderful work that you're doing. And thank you for joining us today. A reminder to everyone that you can learn more about Bill and his work at Animus Valley Institute by going to his website, www.animus.org, A-N-I-M-A-S.org. The Banyan Books uh, podcast can be found anywhere podcasts are cast. You can watch the YouTube of these recorded live sessions on our YouTube channel as well, or you can visit us at banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Another uh, wonderful interview with In Conversation. Bill Plotkin, thank you again for joining us. And thank you, Ross. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you to everyone who tuned in.